Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerted, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Narjas Flores. I'm one of your hosts for this very special episode live for 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer in Singapore. And I'm here with my wonderful co-host. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University. A pleasure to be here with you. And we're talking with some of the presenters from what we think are some of the more impactful abstracts um, today at the World Conference on Lung Cancer. It is our privilege to be joined by a former ESMO president, currently at Lausanne University Hospital, Dr. Solange Peters. Hello. Thanks for having me. Solange, you presented uh, an interesting abstract here on long-term survival, specifically six-year survival and health-related quality of life outcomes with frontline dual checkpoint inhibition and Checkmate 227. Now, this is a combination of the PD-1 inhibitor, nivolumab, the CTLA-4 inhibitor, ipilimumab. And one of the, the concerns about this regimen has been toxicity. That's why this type of analysis is so important. Do you think for our listeners you could summarize what you found over time with this regimen? Yes, thanks so much. So this is a kind of a repetitive presentation. Uh, 227 has been pre presented many times, but it has also the characteristic of being representing today the longest follow-up ever of an immunotherapy trial. So I think we have to report about it as often as possible just to show how the whole paradigm of immunotherapy develops over time after diagnosis and after initial treatment. We present now more than six years follow-up for epinevo versus chemo. And keep in mind that these patients all stopped the treatment at two years. So we are four years after stopping the treatment. So the idea was to show, first of all, the two populations which usually define uh, categories that we would treat differently, the positive versus the negative PDL1 and the six years over survival outcome. And what is interesting to say grossly is one patient out of five or one patient out of six in the EP-NIVO arm is still alive, regardless and irrespective of PDL1 in the EP-NIVO arm. The number of patients being alive on the chemo is almost, almost inexisting, regardless of the PDL1. Uh, so it's quite important to also say that this is reflected by the progression free survival at six years, the duration of response, with almost half of the patients or even more than half of the patients who responded initially, so who remain uh, in response at six years. In this analysis, we didn't see any new toxicity. So the management of toxicity really uh, has to focus on the two years of treatment, some months later on, where we have learned how to manage toxicity of low-dose EP1 mig per kg. So I think the complexity we have overcome as being a community of academic doctors, but not only, I think all the community oncologists now perfectly know how to handle ipilimumab. So I think that has been overcome. It has some toxicity, but we have been facing way more difficult toxicity, and we are still facing way more difficult toxicities using some new fancy drugs and targeted therapies. So I think that's, that's maybe not the limitation. In that trial, what we show, which I like in terms of understanding the outcome of patients, is a correlation we make between the burden reduction, meaning quantifying how much the disease is shrinking over time, you can quantify in percentage, right, and the overall survival. And the more the shrinkage, so the, the more important is the reduction of the burden of the disease, the more important is the survival. With up to 60% of the patient or even 70% of the patient, depending on the PDL one 
being alive at six years if they have a reduction of more than 80% of their target lesions at the time of initial measurement. So really helping you when you follow your patients to understand more or less the granularity of what you do and potentially anticipate if needed uh, what to do next or what to continue with uh, regarding the discussion, the follow-up uh, and the general, I would say, um, journey that you define with your patient, jointly with your patient. So Solange, I have a question with this. One of the challenges is selecting the right patients for Checkmate 227. We know that some patients we have prolonged benefit and that is you know, the ideal patient. How can our audience get guidance for you on selecting the ideal patient for this regimen? Yeah. So this is really a kind of a, a benefit-crease ratio between an, an additional toxicity as compared to not using ipilimumab, not using the CTLA4, and, and, uh, and the gain, what can be the gain? So basically, I would say this, it's easy because this is the longest follow-up. So the immunologist in the room would say with CTLA4, you might have a better memory T cell response, a better expansion of your clones. So maybe at the, in 10 years from now, ipilimumab will be considered important to have a very durable response and survival, meaning to be cured, let me use the word, maybe at some point we'll tell ipilimumab is better than the other drugs, but it's too early to say. So I wouldn't say CTLA-4 is really needed for all comers. At the time being, based on the short observation time we have still with immunotherapy, I would say there are maybe two or three populations where it has really shown that um, CTLA-4, right, that there is a magnitude of benefit to gain. First is negative pdl ones because the negative pdl one subgroup usually benefits marginally or not at all from immunotherapy. So this group is saved, rescued by the CTLA-4. Second might be brain meds. We see a magnitude of benefit in brain metastatic patients, which is unprecedented. And it's known for melanoma that it might be something uh, specific from CTLA-4 in the microenvironment of the brain. However, it has not been studied prospectively, so it would deserve a prospective study. And the last is bi biologically defined, molecularly defined subgroup, STK11, KIP1, even maybe P53 of KRAS are all subgroups which sometimes are considered to be, to be treated distinctly with, uh, with, uh, with checkpoint, particularly STK11, which is a, a pure Im immune dessert. And, and these patients are also rescued, have a, a strong benefit from immunotherapy when you use a CTLA-4. So negative PDL one and with probably less evidence, uh, brain meds, STK11, KIP1. So that's where I would, at the time, being considered CTLA-4 is needed. But maybe in 10 years, I would tell you, you need CTLA-4. I think these data are, are really impressive. And six years of follow-up, just we, we wouldn't imagine of, of needing to do six years of follow-up 10 years ago. So I think these are really a testament to how far we've come. The lack of new serious toxicity in that longer follow-up is, is very reassuring. This dual checkpoint inhibition uh, is a nice strategy. You mentioned a few instances to use this, but do you think for our listeners you could contrast this with the Checkmate 9LA regimen, where we're adding in two cycles of chemotherapy, when is that necessary versus just dual checkpoint alone? Well, two answers to that. First, the regulatory environment. Sometimes it's necessary because two to seven. It was a trial, you know, at the time where we were kind of starting to, to play with immunotherapy, which changed a lot, the endpoints over time and, and the design. So some authorities, some countries and some uh, regional authorities have not bought it right, meaning that 227 is not available everywhere. 
point number one, very practical one. But finally, in terms of uh, being an opportunity as compared to the 2.7, the difference is two cycles of chemo in the beginning, huh? two cycles ipinivo or just ipinivo. Finally, might be useful in this patient for whom you would suspect that you have to bet on a response for very important parameters like survival, threatening disease, very symptomatic disease with pain, with compression of a noble organ, uh, whatever would be a threat in case of progression might use an INLA, might deserve an INLA regimen because you have these two cycles of chemo, which gives rise to the usual control we know, uh, which is related to chemotherapy. So I think the INLA is important because it allows to prevent or to avoid some early progression which can be dramatic for patients. But I would say in a patient with a minimal burden of disease, no threatening lesion, a good performance status, I'm not sure you need these two cycles of 9LA. Sometimes in, in some countries where you, you can't have 227, the doctors will get reimbursement for maximum of two cycles of chemo, and at the end he decides to give none. <laughs> One last question. When we're studying trials now that are immunotherapy-based, how long do we need to do follow-up going forward? Well, that's the, that is the nightmare of our clinical trial units. You know, my clinical trial unit is always overcome. And they say, I always ask, but in the past, 10 years ago, you were not. You had more trials. You were fine. Oh, yes, but now we have to follow up every adverse event and every patient for 10 years. In the past, with the chemo, you stopped at two years. No need to follow up. When you have stopped chemo, you could stop the follow-up. So now the duration of this trial, closing a trial, is an exceptional event at the era of immunotherapy. So it means it's a very long follow-up. I think we need to do that. I think we need to be able to look for these patients over time, what uh, is the potential unexpected toxicity, but also we'll have an abstract here, which is interesting, about second primary. Will we have any impact about the outcome of these cancers, other cancers? So I think we need to follow up, but rational follow-up would be good too. At some point, it's not so much a toxicity when you have stopped EPC two years ago. It's not so much toxicity. I'd like to know how the patients readapt to normal life. I'd like to know if they work. I'd like to know if they have a second primary. Maybe I don't really want to know if they have some car crash because, you know, adverse events of all types is also car crash. So you can, we can do rational follow-up too, but following up is important. But I think that it's really a, a, a call to arms that we need to rework our entire clinical trials infrastructure because the metrics we were previously using to staff uh, are, are no longer relevant. And unless we have a major overhaul here, we're not going to be able to keep up as new trials come in. No, we start to do pragmatic trials where we think, okay, let's look only at OS. I understand it's based on time. I'm not sure it's perfect, but you also have to have pragmatic follow-up. If you follow beyond five years, what do you want to know? You want to know if the patient joins the category of patients who had never a cancer in terms of working ability, salary, uh, recovery. You'd like to know if these patients uh, develop something else, like a second primary. You'd like, there are many things you'd like to know, but maybe not things that are captured in the CRF, right? So we should also have pragmatic follow-up, knowing at each time point what is really needed for the community to get the real knowledge. So sometimes also having habitude or systematic follow-ups is not the good way neither. We need really to, to think what, what is the important thing to do. Uh, well, let me turn to, to one of our other guests. We were joined by a few other colleagues for, for their input, our patient research advocate, Jill Feldman. Jill, any, any thoughts to what Solange just mentioned? 
Yeah, I do. Thank you. And yeah, Solange, I mean, this study alone saying, you know, six-year follow-up, that's uncharted waters here in lung cancer, right? We're in uncharted waters with patients living longer. And I think patients are expected to live longer now. So it is necessary for us to control for either long-term late effects, compounding effects, and to extend to what you were saying just about life and what's going on in their life, second primaries, uh, many patients go on second, third, fourth lines of treatment, and we aren't controlling for those compounded cumulative effects of, you know, multiple lines of therapy. And so then we're in this place where nobody knows how to handle or treat or take care of certain effects that are late and long term with these different therapies. So I I agree with you. I think the long term follow up is really important. Thank you so much for your input. As we continue the conversation, we are going to chat about CRYSTAL-1, which is a two-year follow-up of adagrosate monotherapy in patients with advanced in metastatic KRAS G12C mutant. We have Dr. Sarich Gatgil from Henry Ford in the United States. Dr. Gatgil, could you summarize what is the up- these are updates we have at two years? So adagrosate is a covalent inhibitor of KRAS G12C, and... Uh recently received approval, accelerated approval by the US FDA for the treatment of pretreated KRAS G12C uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients. And this was based on the uh, phase two cohort of the CRYSTAL-1 trial in which 116 patients were treated with adagrasib at a dose of 600 milligrams BID. And uh, in these patients, there was a response rate of 42.9% observed and a median duration of response for 8.5 months. So what we presented at this conference uh, was a two-year outcomes of a pooled analysis of 132 patients. So that included patients from the phase one dose escalation and dose expansion cohorts, as well as this phase two cohort A of crystal one. Um, again, patients were treated at the 600 milligrams BID dose of uh, adagrasib, uh, and the median follow-up here is 26.9 months. And what this showed is that these results that were initially presented with a median uh, follow-up of 8.5, rather about 12 months, hold up. So the median survival is 14.1 months. Now the two-year survival is uh, 31.3%, and the median progression-free survival is 6.9 months. And what is interesting is 13.9% low percentage. Nonetheless, 13.9% of the patients are progression-free at two years. And the median duration of response now with this two-year follow-up is 12.4 months. So there were a couple of other aspects that were uh, evaluated with this long-term follow-up. Are there any subsets where we see a lack of benefit or greater benefit? And so we looked at uh, uh, efficacy based on co-mutation status. Um, And efficacy was seen across uh, all subsets based on co-mutation. So there was a bit of variability. It's very hard to know if the efficacy differs significantly. So the median overall survival in the patients with one co-mutated tumors was 5.7 months, and it was 18.7 months among patients with P53 co-mutated tumors. So the median PFS ranges were a lot shorter between 4.1 months and 8.7 months. 
efficacy was also demonstrated in patients with uh, baseline CNS metastases. Important to note that in CRYSTAL-1, the patients were required to have stable and treated CNS metastases. Nonetheless, uh, even with long-term follow-up, the efficacy was very similar among patients with CNS metastases, suggesting that these patients are not at any greater risk of relapse uh, than compared to patients who don't have baseline metastases. And of course, with long-term follow-up, there is the issue of safety, um, and no new safety signals were uh, assessed. One of the concerns with the G12C inhibitors is the toxicity observed in patients who have previously received checkpoint inhibitors. And at least in this analysis, though only 12 patients who received the drug within 30 days of checkpoint inhibitors, none of the patients developed grade 3 or 4 hepatotoxicity. And only one patient in the entire data set discontinued at aggressive because of a grade 3 hepatotoxicity. Finally, we looked at safety among patients who had received the drug for more than a year. And actually, the overall rate of treatment-related AEs was somewhat lower in this population who received the drug for more than a year as compared to the overall patient population. And so um, a drug that does require dose, require dose reduction almost in about 50% of the patients, what is encouraging to see is that with long-term follow-up, you're not seeing uh, cumulative uh, toxicities. Um, and so uh, I think what the conclusion is that the drug does appear to provide uh, clinically meaningful, uh, durable benefit. Um, clearly, the benefit with these drugs is not comparable to, let's say, the EGFR inhibitors or um, ALK inhibitors. But I think what this long-term data is going to probably help us is identify the patients who are likely to derive that long-term benefit. Though the percentage is small, uh, almost 14% uh, of the patients had progression-free survival at two uh, uh, even after two years of follow-up. And so probably there's a hint in a further analysis of these patients as to who are the ones who are going to benefit from single-agent covalent inhibitors of Gera G12C and who are the patients who may require combination treatments either with checkpoint inhibitors, chemotherapy, or other targeted agents to provide greater benefit. Thank you so much for breaking all that data. And I have a question because we have two agents in the sense space. How the updated in Crystal 1, we help oncologists across the globe pick between the two agents. I don't know that this data necessarily helps us choose an agent uh, over the other. What I can say is that to me, the efficacy and the benefit appears reasonably similar. Of course, these are two different drugs evaluated in two different trials. It's always going to be difficult to compare the results of each other. And I think I'm looking at it is that we do have drugs that benefit this group of patients that in general to date has uh, not has, has had as many therapeutic options as uh, some of the other subsets of uh, lung cancer patients. I think the one area where it is uh, somewhat of a relief is that among patients who were treated with uh, checkpoint inhibitors within a relatively short period of time before receiving the G12C inhibitor, at least to date, uh, with uh, adagrasib, there doesn't appear to be a significantly high rate of what appear to be immune-related AEs, which is what was seen with sotorasib. Now, whether that holds up in sort of randomized data 
and further follow-up remains to be seen. So uh, since these patients are receiving these drugs mostly after previous treatment with platinum-based chemotherapy with or without checkpoint inhibitors, uh, knowing that there's an agent that is not likely to cause significant toxicity from an immune-related AE point of view uh, is uh, gratifying to see. Trish, any role for using these drugs in sequence? Can one overcome resistance to another? So I think uh, when you look at the resistance, uh, mechanisms of resistance with both of these drugs, what is very clear is that the resistance mechanisms are extremely complex in these tumors. Uh, If you compare it to something like EGFR, mutated lung cancers treated with EGFR-targeted therapy, or similarly, uh, translocated lung cancer patients treated with ALK inhibitors, there appears to be a somewhat more defined mechanism of resistance. Here, the probability of having multiple mechanisms of resistance is quite high uh, in this patient population. Having said that, there are reports that certain specific uh, mutations may be sensitive Uh, to one of the agents. So I'm forgetting at the present time very candidly the specific mutation uh, that may emerge as a mechanism of resistance, but one that can emerge on adagrasib may be sensitive to sotoracib, but that percentage is extremely small. And I think uh, what is going to be needed is probably uh, combination treatments targeting uh, at least some of the downstream pathways that appear to be activated in tumors that are resistant to these drugs. I mean, this space is going to get very crowded. We've already seen data for several other KRAS G12C inhibitors. We know uh, others along the way. But I think that, that what does separate maybe is that interaction with immunotherapy, which was surprising in some of the concurrent um, studies because we really thought it was a class effect, and maybe it's not. Maybe the details do matter a bit. And so here's a question. I wouldn't have great answers for it, but you noted some of the toxicity following immunotherapy. Do you notice any difference in efficacy after immunotherapy? Uh, if you're giving the drugs closer to immunotherapy, is that what's responsible for long-term benefit? I'm not sure that at least I'm aware of data that necessarily suggests. Now, in the CRYSTAL-1 trial, 97% of the patients had received uh, immunotherapy. So it's going to be challenging to sort of uh, understand if the efficacy of the drug uh, is any different if immunotherapy has been, uh, de- you know, administered before receiving the drug. About concurrent uh, therapy, the only thing we can say based on a presentation uh, at ESMO Asia last year is that the um, there is safe, uh, the toxicity doesn't appear to be significantly high when given combination. But I think those are very relevant questions. Um, I also do feel that it is going to be critical to identify the patients in which the combination is going to be relevant. I think our approach right now is to look at checkpoint inhibitors with a drug like adagrasib in a broad set of krig 12 c mutated patients. But maybe there are subsets of these patients who truly are going to be benefited from this combination. Thank you so much for all that information. And it's my true honor to introduce our next guest, which is... Jill Philman, she is a patient advocate, a patient activist, a leader in many, many aspects, and one of the co-founders of the EGFR Resistors. On top of all of that I just said, she also has worked with ISLC in the language of precision in thoracic oncology. This is a work of love for a Jill that includes how we speak to our patients, how we report 
data and very important how we remove a stigma from lung cancer. So starting out, how this started, Jill? How was this language? Do you have this epiphany or how this work uh, from day one? That's a great question because it really has been something that I have thought about for a dozen years. Um, in fact, I wrote a blog probably 11 years ago. It was, I, I, with my history with lung cancer, an extensive family history, I have been, you know, the past 40 years directly and indirectly affected by lung cancer. And the one thing that always stands out, whether you're a patient or a loved one, is you're, when you are diagnosed, there is a different reaction to a person diagnosed with lung cancer than any other cancer. And so I started thinking about the way lung cancer is talked about compared to the way other cancers were talked about. And really, truly, what I noticed the most was that people diagnosed with lung cancer from the start were labeled, they were characterized by their smoking status. So you weren't even a person. There, you, you were either a smoker, a non-smoker, a former smoker, a light smoker. So right there, you take away the human part of the person, and they're defined by a single story. And no other cancer are you labeled like that? And so as we know, labels, you know, create these perceptions and attitudes about people. And sometimes they're good, but sometimes they're harmful. And so it's, I started thinking that if we continue to define people by the stigma we are only going to perpetuate the stigma, not, you know, get rid of the stigma. And the other thing I really realized being in the advocacy space for 22 years is that not only is it, you know, affecting patients um, in general, but it's really divisive within the community itself. So people who used to be involved in advocacy who have any history of smoking have stepped back because the minute you feel you have to de declare, but I didn't smoke, unintentionally shifts an extremely hev heavy blame on all the rest of the people of any kind of smoking history. And so being someone who has been in advocacy for that long, there aren't very many people it was something that I felt was my responsibility to really try and, you know, kind of address. And so that's really where it came from. Can I just ask, uh, Adna, just, um, I've been a lung cancer doctor for 23 years. Yes, I'm old. Um, but I really learned from Jill that how critical it is, the words that we use with our patients. We are so focused on the radiology tests and the biopsy results and the drugs and authorization for drugs 
that sometimes we don't pay attention to this very, very critical issue. And I'll also say this, it was always important. I think as lung cancer patients are living longer, it has become even more critical what the impact of our words, because they sometimes that those emotions that we generate get perpetuated um, through the time that we take care of these patients. So thank you, Jill. This is, this is a very critical aspect that I think the medical community at large has not paid enough attention to. And and what I, what I what I felt listening to you for the second time today is what we forget is we all use stereotypes because stereotypes mix our way a little easier and faster. We use short ways, right? But there are some stereotypes which take the risk or uh, kind of embed the risk of creating new stereotypes. Your story of smoking, not smoking, um, habitudes in life and so on suddenly categorize people, first of all, also in an ethnicity probably, but also in something which should be the right behavior and the wrong behavior. And starting from this kind of statement, if it's used routinely on a daily basis and so on, gives rise to a perception of the society which has created many problems in the last centuries, right? So I think we have to be careful that if we start as physician, doctors, knowledgeable about how diversity is important to use stereotypes repetitively. We're also moving in a trend which is a, a political danger to me. So, But we forget. Huh? We forget sometimes when we speak about a patient and not a tumor and so on. Yeah. So we, we have people to say, oh, you can't say this word or you can't use this sentence because it's not respectful of the fact that you're speaking about someone. Sometimes we forget and we need people to tell us, oh, be aware you made it wrong. So a lot of those lines, for some people that may be listening right now, they may not be very familiar. And I want to ask you, what are the top three things that investigators, physicians, and early career should avoid when we're talking about our patients, when we're talking about their caregivers, that will not fit on the stigma and will help us heal some of those relationships that may have been broken because we have been using exclusionary language? Yeah, so I think the first thing I want to recognize, too, is the importance of, you know, I and everybody who worked on the language guide, you know, medical oncology language I know is rooted in history and tradition and was originally used to describe cancer and was originally created not with patients in mind. Patients weren't reading, you know, their notes. They weren't going to conferences or reading journal articles, right? So, but that's all changed. So, and that's another reason this is so important is, you know, and, and the reason we created it is not to call people out. So it's recognizing the history and now, you know, helping to raise awareness of why some of these words and phrases and images can be harmful. And so I think, you know, if I were to pick a top three, I think the 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 most important thing is to recognize the person and their family and so it's i i i'll time and time again i can say that that seemingly innocent question of do you smoke or are you still smoking can have unintended consequence if the meaning is interpreted differently. So it's really making sure that you are having conversations with families and in a very empathic 
way, a very understanding way. But it's not easy for everybody to do that. Nobody's trained about it. on how to do it. So that's the first thing to recognize. And I think another thing to recognize is to listen to patients. You ask questions and listen. Get to know your patients because patients want to know that the doctor caring for them also cares about them. And that's all about building trust. And so once you build that trust, though some of those questions and some of the words used uh, naturally fall into place, or it's not interpreted as something accusatory or negative. So aside from just the words It's the tone, it's the body language, all of it, all of it have a profound impact on a patient and their family during one of the most terrifying times in their life. And that's that's why it matters, but we're all learning together, right? So person first language, ask a patient, you know, do you want to be referred to as a patient or a person with lung cancer or, you know, survivor? If you are going to use any of those terms, just ask the patient and they will tell you, right? I don't mind being called a lung cancer patient, but I don't want to be called a survivor because I feel like surviving the death of my parents and, you know, surviving the past 40 years of that is much more difficult than surviving the diagnosis myself. But, you know, I, I know there's no ill intention there. And the other thing is, I think, blame language within medical oncology in general, the patient failed treatment. You know, patient doesn't fail treatment. The treatment fails the patient. And it's interesting because I know that, but when I read certain things, there's a visceral (laughs) reaction when you're the vulnerable patient. And so a patient, you know, is non-compliant. Well, really, are they non-compliant or can they not afford to take their medication every day or they can't afford to come to clinic or, you know, or complaint? Are they complaining? So really thinking about that along with the stigmatizing language of labeling patients are really, really important. And then the other, the fourth principle is, um, you know, equity and inclusion. And we, this language guide is a fluid document. This is just the first iteration. So we really want to work on, you know, improving it time and time again and input from, you know, other people is how we do it. I I found the guide to to just be such an opportunity to discuss with colleagues, trainees, uh, even when we're reviewing manuscripts about the importance of our words, the intention that we take with our words. And I want to be clear to listeners, it's not etiquette or manners. It really is reshaping our perspective and sort of bringing back the humanism of, of why we're doing what we're doing. And I really think it it, it sort of restores the, the right intention with, mm-hmm. with medical care. So I think it was really impactful work. And I know that we would all love to keep talking about this, but we are at time okay. for this episode. And so we're going we're gonna to thank our guests 
one last time from Centre Hospital Universitaire Vaudois, uh, Dr. Solange Peters. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Suresh Guillaume from Henry Ford in Detroit. <laughs> and Jill Feldman. Thank you all for joining Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 